All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Now I can look back with hindsight and see things like what Cromwell said and Charles II said, that we were Englishmen. In the same way a Cornishman is a part of England and a Northumbrian thinks he's a part of England. And so it didn't take much instigation when the war came along to think that we should be fighting. In your own family, nobody says to you, you must go and defend your family. You just do it. It's natural. Now, looking back, I can see how we were conditioned over centuries. In 1897, Britain celebrated Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. During the 60 years of her reign, the British had fought 111 wars around the globe and secured for themselves one of the largest empires ever recorded. The historian H.F. Wyatt, at the time of the Jubilee, wrote, To us... To us, and not to others, a certain definite duty is assigned, to carry light and civilization into the dark places of the world, to give to thronging millions the first condition of human advance, to fill the wide waste places with the children of Britain, to let the sound of the English tongue and the pure life of English homes give to the future of these immense regions its hue and shape. Back in the 18th century, Britain maintained the hue and shape of its Caribbean empire by first recruiting slaves to its armies. Their duties were to protect British planters and to police the slave empire. They were given special privileges and often gained their freedom for service to the crown. The plantocracy, ever fearful of armed rebellion, instilled an intense loyalty in the soldiers and removed all traces of their African ancestry, language and culture. After slavery, British presence in the Caribbean was highlighted by ceremony, frequent royal visits, and careful instruction. There were some books called Royal Readers, and these books taught you all about England, nothing about your own country. And they also taught you that the people of Africa were animals, you know, savages. We have an English governor who comes out. We have a colonial secretary who comes out. 
we have the director of education who comes out all English and in their capable hands lie the destiny of most Jamaicans. There is something too of an old world grace left where there are country dances like the Alberts and the Quadrilles. When you can well imagine how subtly it is to inculcate an attitude of mind in the people if you can use the, the sentiments evoked by songs, especially when the songs are patriotic. And the consequence of this was certainly, Belize was well injected with the sense of Britishness, not just British patriotism, but Britishness and the nation of England, even when we didn't know where it was. You see, I must remember, especially when I went to high school, all my exam papers came from England because we took the same exams you took here was the same exams you took there. Junior Cambridge, Senior Cambridge, matriculation, higher schools, and even I played the piano. So if I showed you my certificates of my music exams, nothing on it said Jamaica. It would have the Royal Academy of Music London. All the nursery rhymes we learned at school were English. All the books we read, all the fairy stories, everything was English. At the age of about eight or nine years, we were taught to draw maps of England, put in all the towns and rivers. We were never taught that about Jamaica. What we were taught was English history, but only that aspect of history that highlighted the British as a superior group of people. At the outbreak of the First World War, a wave of patriotism swept through the Caribbean. As casualties mounted in Europe, a recruiting campaign was launched. Over 10,000 men volunteered for service. It was to be the first time that the newly formed British West Indies Regiment was to serve overseas. Under the leadership of British officers, the volunteers were brought to England for training. Hastily built accommodation during the severe winter of 1915 caused the death of over a thousand men. Two battalions saw active service in Palestine and were praised by their officers for their courage in battle. 900 casualties were sustained, and 61 men were decorated. Others served in Europe but never saw any real action. After repeated requests for a transfer to the battlefields, the War Office replied, it is against British tradition to employ Aboriginal troops against a European enemy. At the beginning of the Second World War, ex-public schoolboy Joe Moody went to a recruiting office in Whitehall to see if he could become an officer in the British Army. I was interviewed by a captain who was obviously quite embarrassed with my being there. And eventually the captain got up and talked to the major and then they came back. The captain came back and he said, well, without being personal, you can't answer the questions on the attestation form in the affirmative. So I said, well, I haven't seen an attestation form. The attestation form had a line which said, of pure European birth and you had to write yes or no. And the officer said, obviously, without being personal, you can't answer that in the affirmative. I said, well, I was born in England, and um, what do I do now? He said, well, I suggest you uh, join up in the forces, in the, in the ranks. And I said, well, what about this piece of paper, which says I'm qualified for basic training as an officer, if suitable? Well, just hope that that'll get you a commission in due, due course. 
In the late 1930s, General Finlayson had recommended to the Army Council that commissions for all the armed services should be reserved for British subjects of British parents of pure European descent. But when it became law, the colonial office, given the job of controlling the empire and anxious to accommodate West Indians who wished to fight the Nazis, wrote to the War Office to have the law changed. The War Office replied that it was considering this thorny problem. But when Dr. Harold Moody, a prominent leader of the black community in Britain, heard of his son's rejection, he fought back. And uh, he immediately picked up the telephone right there and phoned the colonial office, uh, got an appointment with one of the undersecretaries there, and I think that started the wheels in motion for getting the Army Act changed, which enabled uh, members of the colonies to have commissions in the forces for the duration of the war. But British policy towards colonial volunteers remained equivocal. A Foreign Office memo dispatched to colonial governors stated, we must keep up the fiction of there being no color bar. Only those with special qualifications are likely to be accepted. Whitehall's reluctance to accept volunteers dated back to the First World War. Disillusioned soldiers, considered troublesome and difficult, rioted on the return to the Caribbean. During the 1930s, conditions deteriorated in the bankrupt colonial economy. The events of the 30s were so bad that all the workers went on strike. These strikes started in St. Kitts and they ran into Trinidad in 1936 and they spread to Jamaica in early 1937. The British government, don't forget, has had all these problems going back to the slave rebellions. And so they used to send what they call commissions out to find out what was wrong. Like they still send to Ireland to find out what's wrong in Ireland. And this commission in 1937 was led by a man called Lord Moyne, who previously, I think, was governor of Egypt. Lord Moyne's findings, delivered to cabinet at the beginning of the war, were severely critical of conditions in the West Indies. The report was suppressed because of fears that the Germans would use the information to turn the colonies against Britain. But as the war escalated, Britain turned once more to the Caribbean for support. The recalcitrant service chiefs, aware of the findings of the Moyne report, felt a propaganda campaign was necessary to raise volunteers. When it began, the Ministry of Information was briefed about the characteristics of the West Indian. He is an African in temperament, if not in culture. He is easily stirred emotionally, likes music, display, and bright colors. And if, as many would say, he is congenitally lazy, this may be due as much to chronic malnutrition and disease as to temperament. He has not forgotten he was once a slave. It is a point on which he is profoundly sensitive. Having lost his indigenous African culture, he has not yet found anything substantial to put in its place, though Christianity has, to some extent, filled the void. The result is an absence of ethical standards, of any sense of community and social responsibility. The point here is to present a picture of the British Commonwealth which will command the admiration as well as the goodwill of the West Indian, and to emphasize the efficiency, moral strength, and forward-looking character of British democracy as well as the armed might of the empire. The air is most temperate and wholesome, situated in the midst of the temperate zone. For 
water, it is walled and guarded with the ocean, most commodious for traffic to all parts of the world. The Earth... British patriotism brainwashed us in an extremely subtle way. It was the sense of identity, not of where you are, but whom you are and to what it is that you are related, so that you don't see yourself as some Belizean or some Barbadian or Jamaican. You see yourself very Britishly. Methinks I see in my mind a mighty and puissant nation rousing herself like a strong man after sleep. My ambition was uh, just to, I didn't care what uh, I'd done in the war, just uh, that I helped. Methinks I see her as an eagle. We could picture ourselves uh, serving in the force and being officers and things like that with these beautiful uniforms and uh, wings on your shoulders. We didn't know what it would be like. We assumed it would be like what was on the posters, flying and things like that. And even if this island were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the sea, armed and guarded by the British fleet. I don't think English propaganda was really necessary in view of the fact that the groundworks were already laid. And I don't think most Jamaicans ever had any divisibility between loyalty to Jamaica and loyalty to England. To equip our fighting men on land, at sea and in the air. West Indian craftsmen began to arrive in Britain in 1940. An army without uniform. In Britain now, by day and by night, in all the workshops of war, that huge army without uniform is on active service. There may be a few people who felt that they wanted to fight for the mother country. But the munition workers who came, they were craftsmen. And they came not because they wanted to fight for Britain as such. But it was a job, and it was better paid than the, the jobs that were available in Jamaica at that time. So it's a mixture. But I actually say categorically that the majority came here simply because there was a job. Nothing else. Hard on the heels of the skilled craftsmen came the British Honduran Forestry Unit. Whitehall had written to the governor of Belize to say that they wanted so many hundred men to come and cut timber in the Scottish forests. Immediately this news got about. It wasn't long before 1,500 volunteered for where they wanted 500. The men were first brought to Port of Spain in Trinidad and from there came in convoy to the North Atlantic. Soon after, many others who had joined the Air Force followed. Alan Armstrong came on the SS Cuba. From day one, from I left uh, the West Indies, I think this Cuba took uh, four or five days. And it was a very old boat, and it was really rolling. And uh, I, not being used to the sea, I became ill, started to be sick. And uh, I was sick for the entire voyage. The second stage of the journey was from uh, New York to Liverpool in England. And I think that was the worst and worst part of the journey. I, I really went through it then. We could hear machine gun fire in the distance. And you could also see um, 
flashes from the from the guns that were being put off. The convoy was definitely being harassed by the German U-boats, and it was very frightening. I didn't even imagine that I was going to be directly involved in aspects of war itself. To kill somebody or to destroy a building or something like that, it never occurred to me. Three days out, by which time we had seen quite a number of ships sunk, we had our share, by which time we had become very, very apprehensive because now we not only knew that we were in trouble, we were in trouble. We were seeing it. And some of the boys, for the first time in their lives, were showing a sign of panic. It went about midday. There was one eternal blast to the ship, and she just almost moved sideways under the force of the torpedo. And of course, all the lights just went out, and the ship began to take her list to port. The forestry unit's crippled ship limped to Iceland, where the men boarded a new vessel bound for Scotland. They were rapidly transported during a bombing raid to Duns on the east coast. However, under that menace, we reached Duns early in the morning and to enter a place of hotments whose um, ground and environment was muddy with a few planks of boards to lead into some of the huts. <laughs> it looked more like internment camps to receive prisoners of war rather than to receive volunteers coming over to boost the war effort. So our worst problem was that of clothing. Remember, we had come with these um, tropical clothing, and apart from the Canadian brown overcoat, we had nothing else. Immediately out of the tropics into the winter months of England, with this kind of garment that hardly meet the situation, the welfare officer continually harangued the ministry over our conditions. And it took a very, very long time for some of these things to be put right. They were not all put right. A year later, they received their winter clothing. But for others, the first sight of England provided different impressions. It took about three weeks to come across. And when I arrived at um, Bristol, there was a bombing raid that night, which I'd never seen or heard of before in my life. And we had to lie off in the Bristol Channel the next morning when we were allowed to land. So as I walked towards the uh, Great Western Railway, I now know it is, a porter came towards me, and he came to me and said, take your bag, sir, me, a foreign tourist. And I thought he was pulling my leg, because here was a white man who I thought was a general or an admiral or something, because he had all this gear on, but he was thinking porter. And I said, no, sir, to him. You know, I'm very sorry, sir. <laughs> He thought, I've got a right one here, you know. Well, at night time, everything, it seemed like you were nowhere at all. One, you, you didn't know whether it was in, inside or outside. There was, there was a night, lights out at 10 o'clock at the night, and you couldn't, you couldn't go, like even the bicycles that we've seen, they used to have a, a cycle light, and the top off used to be blacked out, and you would only see the little bottom off. And it... it it was, it was really eerie. I had no imagination, no concept of what it should have been. But what I saw did not impress me. Um, I thought, oh, these drab, dull, gray-looking buildings, oh, surely this can't be England. Because in the tropics, although they are shanty towns, generally all the buildings are painted. So they were in bright colors and looking on the brickwork. 
seems to me like he was in a, a country that was filled with prisons. I remember saying to a bloke, oh, could I swear I'd seen a girl driving a lorry? And it seems, the whole concept seems strange. And it was, because uh, this young girl was one of the drivers of these fleet of Air Force trucks that were taking us. And uh, I was quite, quite shocked. But the strangest <laughs> um, impression was to see all the people of different color here. I couldn't believe that uh, a nation of one people, that they all look, their hair was so different. And that was the thing that really got me when I came here. <laughs> it was snowing. And that was my first sight of snow coming from the West Indies. Having arrived, the army sergeants were so enthusiastic to start the training that we were out in that terrible weather, square bashing immediately we came. We were encouraged to run cross-country races, but uh, we found that uh, running in boots at that time wasn't really convenient. But when it was explained that the distance was approximately seven miles, Many of us, that's consternation. Seven miles. We don't even put race horses to run that far in Jamaica, let alone a human being. Even coming back from the running, we went and had cold showers. So can you believe that? My first posting after finishing square bashing, I cried because I was that homesick. I was totally shattered. I wanted to go back home then. The Corporal in charge was PTI, he was called Physical Training Instructor. A little short squat man. Um, his name was Corporal Hiles. He'd been an ex-Bertram Mills clown. He looked at us and he said, all you rabble here, now I'm going to knock you into men and so on. And he looked towards me and he saw me and he said, um, Darky, you look the smartest one. I'm going to promote you to senior craftsman didn't realize, I said, well, what exactly does that mean? He says, it means you get here 10 minutes earlier than the rest of the squad, and you mark out the lines on the pavement on the front of Blackpool, where the squad lines up. But you had to be here 10 minutes earlier. And I was quite pleased. I didn't realize what a swindle it was, that the promotion meant I did more work. But real promotion for Billy Strachan was soon to follow. In 1940, he sold his possessions to pay for his passage to England, aiming to become a pilot. He first became a sergeant and joined 99 Squadron as an air gunner, where he began his first tour of bombing missions over Europe. The two favored people in the armed forces were submarine crews and air crews. And if you went anywhere in the towns or the villages and you saw your RAF wings, well, they just mobbed you and wanted to do everything for you, literally. I mean, you know, middle-aged women who had sons at the front would say, come on into my house and I'll feed you. The younger girls were fun, it was a part, it was a very good life. Joe Moody was sent to Dunbar in Scotland, where he joined an officer cadet training unit. I went through four months of intense training where, because I was literally the guinea pig going forward on this, I had to be very careful. I had to mind my own P's and Q's and really perform outstandingly and I think that uh, 
Well, I didn't get thrown out, so I guess they, they uh, thought I could make it. When he was commissioned, he was given some advice by his company commander. Uh, he took me into his office when we had to sign our report cards, and he told me that I was going to a good regiment, the Queen's Own West Kent Regiment, that I would be the first coloured officer walking into the officer's mess. Um, there would be dead silence when I walked in, but I was not to be embarrassed. And he said, uh, Joe, do your job, and when your time comes to shine, you'll shine. And uh, that was great advice. In 1942, Whitehall requested the colonial authorities in British Honduras to send more men to cut timber in the Scottish forests. 300 immediately volunteered. These men ended up in New Orleans to wait transportation across the Atlantic. Unfortunately, because of bureaucratic bungling, they were handed over from the British authority to an army uh, authority in New Orleans the men were protesting that they were civilians and that they were being treated like army personnel. And in fact, they were told in clear language that unless they conformed with the instruction given to them by the American people, they are going to be punished for insubordination, etc., etc. It's unbelievable that an authority would relegate its position over British subjects to a people whose attitudes towards color was very well known. After their difficulties with the Americans, it took a further two months for the men to arrive in Scotland on the estate of the Duke of Buccleuch. And his attitude from the outset was clearly that he was a racist person, plus his own sense of superiority and his classness within his own society. Hence, the letters between himself and Harold Macmillan. To the Under Secretary of State for the Colonies, my dear Harold, I listened with enjoyment to your talk on the wireless recently, and I thought at the time of writing to you about the British Honduran woodmen who are working in this county. I was told that on their arrival they were quite a decent and well-behaved lot, though lazy at work and requiring a good deal of waking up to get anything out of them. Yes, it was ridiculous because in the first place we must remember that the men that were brought here, apart from the few that came from the city, were mahogany cutters. So therefore, cutting down little pine trees in Scotland were matchsticks to them. And in fact, second, the men were on piecework. And it must be a fool who wouldn't work hard when you're on piecework. The more you work, the more you earn. It is not my purpose to make any complaint against them, but I would like to know if the colonial office has any policy about their association with white women. The people in the neighborhood were encouraged to be friendly to them and the girls have interpreted this rather widely. I would have preferred absolutely definite evidence before writing to you, but personally I dislike this mixture of color. There are already sufficient births of foreign extraction in this country without the additional complication of color. I do feel sorry for these people, but at the same time I also feel that unsophisticated country girls should be discouraged from marrying these black men from equatorial America. I do hope that this can be dealt with judiciously as well as sympathetically. Yours ever, Buccleuch. Much praise must always be given to the Scottish women and young women whose guts made them go out 
in spite of the society's bigotry, the people showed a great sense of compassion towards the boys, and the boys responded in the same way. These were simple men. They were not upstarts, and um, as I said, they are proud to be in their own country fighting for it. The relationship with the locals was wonderful. Dear Walter, I have just got your letter. I have been to each of the three camps myself and have taken a great deal of interest in the men's welfare. When the men first came, they were, I think, not lazy, but intolerably cold. They therefore shivered and huddled themselves together and really did not thaw out until the spring. As to your specific point, I'm having an inquiry made. Yours ever, Harold Macmillan. What I found is that in the streets, in the dance halls, we used to have a lot of racism. People would start passing remarks about these blackies and uh, things like, you're a goat, you should go back to your country. While they, on the other hand, there were the people who were quite pleasant. Don't forget, at that time, they were very, very friendly and uh, they welcomed any help they could get, so they extended a warm hand to us immediately we arrived. On the 5th of February, 1942, I was commissioned. That commission had been brought about by my former squadron commander, who was a white South African. <laughs> and we, he and I had got on extremely well. <laughs> and it was his recommendations from 99 Squadron that had me appointed. See, I was the only black boy in sight. And because I had, I suppose, general English manners and attitudes and things, you know, there was no problem. As I said, rather contradictorily, my squadron commander was a white South African. In 1942, Joe Moody stopped off in South Africa with five other white officers on his way to a posting in Kenya. We did a two-day trip up to Durban, and I walked around Durban with the six of us, um, and we really didn't run into any serious problem there. Uh, one of the officers, one of the six, would always go in first and explain that they had a coloured British officer with them. Uh, we, did, we only ran into problems when we got to the Durban Country Club. Went there for tea one afternoon. And the secretary of the Durban Country Club said, well, this is a private club and this is a little particular, little, little peculiar. Uh, if you want to have tea, come and have it in my, my rooms. So we left the club very rapidly and went somewhere else. From there, the six of us went up to Kenya, and of course, arriving in Kenya, put the cat amongst the pigeons because uh, African soldiers in Kenya were not allowed to speak English. Officers had to learn Swahili. So here was I, now a colored officer arriving there. Uh, they didn't like this at all, and so after a very short time, they shipped me over to Madagascar to get me out of the way. In 1943, Whitehall again made contact with the governor in British Honduras. At the beginning of the war, everybody started to go. All the boyfriends, all the husbands, all the uncles, cousins, men only. First unit, Air Force, Army, and we heard announced on the radio that they were ready now to recruit girls. And so I jumped on my bicycle and dashed off to this drill hall where we were supposed to go. And when I got there, I found I was number 31 on this list. And then eventually they chose six people and I was one of those six. And we left around about November 1943 and crossed by ship to Jamaica where we stayed for six months or thereabouts. And then eventually we were brought over to England for training. 
Yes, I volunteered to come to England to be here during the war. And I remember I was kitted out, and I, was, I felt very proud when I got my winter coat and all my winter gear. But just when I should have got my marching orders to come to England, my commanding officer refused to sign the paper for me to come to England because he said that medical secretaries were very, very difficult to train. So that's why I didn't do any war service in the United Kingdom. Whenever a troop ship came in, we had to go down to meet the troop ship and make straight for the medical room. And it means that I saw the soldiers just as they came with one arm, one leg. So we had the realities of war, we, especially me. And as a young girl, I had to cope with that, which at times I found very difficult. Nadia Katus and her young friends first stopped off in America on their way to England. The British authorities had booked them a hotel in Miami. And when we got there, the hotel was very difficult about taking us. And it was some time before we realized the reason they wouldn't take us was for reasons of color. Now we are in Jim Crow country now in Miami. And the bus driver took pity on us. And he said, well, I know a hotel that can take you. And so he drove us to this rather small hotel. And we very gratefully got out and got rooms in it. And it wasn't until the middle of the night, what with doors banging and people coming and going and all the rest, that Rosita said, my God, do you know where we are? We are in a brothel. Going to Miami to be rejected just out of the color of your skin was one of the biggest shocks of my life. And I spent the whole night in that brothel weeping. I was quite young at the time. And I don't think I have ever since then been so shocked and taken aback by something like that. It was in 1942 when American troops first began to arrive in Britain. The Americans tried to import into England the racism that existed in the United States at that time. And uh, we found that sometimes the Americans used to annoy us in the street, they'd be walking along and the Americans would say, look at those niggers walking there, right, let's get them. But very often, I mean, because we, if you like, were on the defensive, we know that we had to attack. Once the American come, then we attack. We didn't give them, sometimes we never give them a chance. And when uh, we were attacked, we went over to the black Americans and asked them if they could help us out. And uh, in one case, they told us that they can't really fight against the white Americans, for they got them out of slavery. It took them a long time. It took them longer to wake up to the fact that they were being suppressed. It took them longer to wake up to the fact, that fact than it took us. So we said, um, no, we're not, going to, we're not going to put up with your nonsense. We're going to fight back. Those that we managed to get friendly with, if we say to them, will you come along with us? And once they found out that the place is um, frequented by American troops, they just didn't come. When we had our disturbances and uh, we were outnumbered in most of the places that we went, we always uh, got unexpected help from the British people. But the presence of American troops in Britain caused problems for the authorities. The colonial office, mindful of Britain's reputation in the empire, urged the war cabinet to consider the effect racial attacks by Americans would have on West Indians. 
particularly as they were fighting a war against the Nazis. But the war cabinet was slow to react, fearful that it might upset its powerful ally. Anthony Eden put forward a simple solution, that Americans should be asked to stop bringing black troops to Britain. This, he suggested, should be delicately raised by saying the climate was unsuitable. Harold Macmillan proposed that all West Indians should wear a Union Jack in their buttonhole so that Americans could distinguish who was a British subject and who was not. These proposals were dropped. The matter was raised in Cabinet on October the 13th, 1942. According to Lord Cadogan, Permanent Under Secretary at the Foreign Office, discussion was on a low level. When Viscount Cranbourne, Secretary of State for the Colonies, pointed out that one of his black officials couldn't go to his favourite restaurant because of white Americans, the Prime Minister replied, that's all right, if he takes his banjo with him, they'll think he's a member of the band. A decision to face the Americans was again deferred, but the problem would not go away. And I thought it strange. And I said to myself, I come for fight the Germans and the Italians who were the enemies, and yet I, I've never fought, fought one. I've never fought a German. Yet I fought an Englishman, I fought an American, and I could hardly understand it. By 1943, there were some 8,000 West Indian troops in Britain. As the problem got worse, Harold Moody submitted complaints to the Americans. But far from being annoyed, the Americans were delighted to act, saying, Negro British subjects are rightly incensed about the way they have been treated in public by our soldiers. Oh, here I am. After that, the Americans willingly cooperated with the Ministry of Information to make a propaganda film about what they understood to be the British attitude towards race. Goodbye. It's been very nice meeting you both. Glad to have met you, I'm sure. Funny you should come from Birmingham too, isn't it? Have you come to my Birmingham? You must come to my home and have a cup of tea with me, both of you. Thank you, we will. Goodbye and good luck. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Well, where are you going? Well, I think I'll get some cigarettes. I'm sure too. Well, I'll get some. Good. Now look, men, you heard that conversation. That's not unusual here. It's the sort of thing that happens quite a lot. Now let's be frank about it. There are colored soldiers as well as white here, and there are less social restrictions in this country. Just what you heard, an English woman asking a colored boy to tea. She was polite about it, and he was polite about it now. Look, that might not happen at home, but the, the point is, we're not at home. We were fed with all sorts of propaganda about each group. And although we were supposed to be one, and we were supposed to know, uh, be fighting the common enemy, yet we were kept divided. And so we were wondering how the general felt about him and me, sir. When the army needs Americans to fight for the country, it takes Negroes along with whites. Everyone's treated the same when it comes to dying. In 1944, Nadia Catus arrived in England to continue her training. She was posted to the ATS Centre at Guildford, where she turned down the opportunity to become a drill sergeant. At her own request, she was sent to Scotland to train as a signals operator. I don't know why Scotland loomed so large in my mind and why I just knew I was heading for Scotland. I think it's because the colony and the settlement of British Honduras were peopled by Scottish British, far more than by English British, especially in the early days. So there is something to the sort of way Scottish and African ideas permeated the place in Belize City 
Also, don't forget, the British Honduras Forestry Unit were already in place in Scotland, and I had an uncle among them. And my uncle today will come every year and go to his beloved Scotland. Even though he had a lot of problems when he was in the forestry unit, he still has his love of the place. Continual protests by some of the foresters about poor living conditions and mismanagement by ministry officials led to their deportation. In 1943, the Ministry of Supply decided to send back about 93 men whom they regarded as bad hat and troublemakers. They repatriated these men from here to New York. As usual with the ministry, its bungling or indifference caused the men to travel without papers. So they, had, they traveled to New York, the Americans found that these people had not the adequate traveling documents and parceled them off all in Ellis Island, in prison, in fact, until they could be, um, the, the situation could be clarified to allow them to onward journey. The British Consul General in New York sent a telegram to the Foreign Office. In view of the very understandable resentment felt by the men themselves for their callous dumping in New York, I trust that the strongest representation will be made to the department responsible for the lack of foresight and consideration shown in the method of handling their return. In the interim, one of the men there, because of the travail and the humiliation and the worries that they had, one man went insane and in fact one died. The Foreign Office replied, We regret most sincerely that such an unfortunate slip-up should have occurred and that you should have this troublesome and difficult job on the men's journey home. After three weeks in jail at Ellis Island Prison, the men were taken by train, this time in their winter clothing, through the searing heat of the tropics back to Belize in British Honduras. Even their final pay on disembarkation, many did not have. That quarrel and grouse is still current to this very day in Belize. In 1943, Billy Strachan completed his tour of operations with 99 Squadron. He then became a pathfinder with 156 Squadron. By now, he had flown 33 bombing missions over Europe. While recovering from a serious flying accident, he got married. But in spite of his accident, he refused to be grounded and went to Cranwell to train as a pilot. After that, he volunteered for a further tour of missions. And so I went off and I started flying in the new squadron. And by this time I was flying Lancasters, four-engined heavy bombers. And then I went off and did that until on the last trip my nerve broke and I packed up the bombing. He was grounded at the age of 22, having flown 44 bombing missions. But Captain Joe Moody was to see no action. After two years in Madagascar and Egypt, he was posted to Italy to rejoin his own regiment, the Royal West Kent Infantry. When he arrived, a brigadier from headquarters came to see him. Uh, he said that the Caribbean regiment had arrived in Italy and they needed company commanders and they intended to post me there. I told him that uh, I would prefer to go up to the line with uh, my own regiment we had uh, two battalions in Italy at the time, but I guess his will prevailed and 
I landed up with the Caribbean Regiment. And then, naturally, I threw in my lot with them and I became a Jamaican again. We underwent training in uh, Egypt, very intense training. They thought that the West Indians would be good as night soldiers. And the, one of the plans was that we would go into Kos or Liros. But Kos and Liros apparently fell without any problem, so we didn't go in anywhere. The regiment that I had left in England did go into to action in Europe. And I quite honestly would have preferred to stay with them, but uh, they saw fit to post me. When war was declared and they came to the West Indies, I remember these, these very tall white men came and then they got these trucks and they went all around the island and asked people to volunteer to come. And of course, the men thought they were coming to the United Kingdom to, to, to the war. I volunteered, and I know an awful lot of Jamaican starred youngsters volunteered to come over here, do a job of work. And the more he asked, about this job that he traveled so many thousand miles to come is the more it occurs to him that the jobs have vanished. I used to work in the store, or what you call a uh, general duty clerk. I was quite disappointed because I signed up to be a flight mechanic. And my main job was to look after the bedding stores uh, and sports stores. If they were in the RAF, I don't know, maybe they'd be sweeping the runways that the planes come on, I don't know, possibly that, or peeling potatoes, but whatever it was, it was menial. And they weren't accustomed to doing those sort of things in the West Indies. So they were annoyed about it, and I don't blame them. I was disappointed that I didn't get uh, the jobs to do that I want. I wanted to be a pilot or an air gunner, like those marvelous pictures I used to see printed in the Gleaner. The trade I wanted, it was too late to have it. I, I wanted was to be in the radio operating section of it. And uh, I got trained as a clerk, and uh, that was a thing that uh, could, uh, you know, it couldn't go out of fashion. London, the center of the empire. Just over a year ago, the people celebrated their deliverance. Today, they honored the men who made it possible. What happened is that by 40, end of 44, 45, the mass of West Indians had arrived who had been brought in as West Indians. And they had just about finished their training. And here we are in 45, the war is over. So they were frustrated and weren't, you know, didn't get an opportunity to get at the enemy. Next, the people of the colonial empire. But at the same time, if you speak to them, they're honest. Although they were hurt about the menial jobs, they were still proud that they were doing something for Great Britain. Now the parties from Gibraltar, Hong Kong, Malaya, and the West Indies. I was obviously disappointed that Britain, with all the vast resources of the colonies, apparently didn't want to make use of them. You have throughout the Caribbean, which is the largest English-speaking 
series of colonies. Um, written random like a, a, a club, a private club. But uh, apart from that, ultimately there was terrific support from the colonies. Before I was the mob, at the end of the war, I had a choice. I could stay down in the services, I could sign on for a number of years because they gave us a choice. Well, I felt that I didn't want to stay in the forces anymore. I should return home. But when I saw the appalling condition that still exists, I nearly cried. I was seeing Jamaica then as a matured person. And uh, I said, these conditions must change. And so when I came to England, I started to involve positively in politics to get rid of British imperialism. Billy Strachan returned home with his family, a war hero. He applied for a job as the manager of Jamaica's new airport. When I went along to the interview, I saw a colleague of mine from school days, whose name was Peter Cargill. He was a white Jamaican, one of the white Jamaicans, who I'd been to school with. He was a very wealthy young man. But he'd been to Canada to train when I'd been to this country. And he'd just finished his training and come to England when the war was finished, so he never actually saw any action at all. And Peter looked at me, and we knew each other from school days, and he said to me, um, are you shortlisted for this job? And I told him, yes, I was. So he said, what's the point of my being here? He said, you know, you're bound to get it with your experience. I must admit, I was a bit smug. I thought, well, of course, you know, bound to get it too. Anyway, we went in for the interview, and I came out, and he was given the job. <laughs> well, I was demobbed in Jamaica itself. And I was really ashamed in a lot of ways, because many of the lads that I went home on the ship with had been on courses and had trained at a lot of things. And there I was, practically four and a half years, and I, 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 didn't, I wasn't trained at anything at all. And it, it was, in many, Jamaica at the time, it was like a, a slight stigma. And I think that was one of the main reasons why I really opted to coming back again. The Empire Windrush arrived in Britain in 1948. Many of those returning were servicemen in search of new jobs. And uh, we also see the hypocrisy. I remember during the war when the propagandists were telling us that we were fighting for a better Britain and that things would be rosy. When the war finished, I can remember there were a lot of firms who would not employ ex-servicemen because they were saying how lazy they were being in the services, they just sit back and they did not do anything. Yet when the war was on, they were clapping these people on their shoulders, patting them on their back and saying, you're great guys, you're fighting for king and country. Having found no job in Jamaica, Billy Strachan returned with his family to England. He went to de Havilland's aircraft factory where during the war he had met the manager. I went into his office and announced myself as Flight Lieutenant Strachan, who knew me very well. And sort of very hesitatingly took me in. And I told him I wanted a job there, something else, some job. Because there were very few people who had that knowledge in, about airplanes and things like that. And he then looked at me very coldly and said, the best job we can offer is a cleaner. So of course I was very annoyed and fed up. And I said, no, I won't take that job. Big talk of independence, you see. So 
I went across the road, there was a place that made telephone bits, earpieces or something. And they had a job as a night cleaner there for £4.15 a week. So I thought, well, I'll take that job. So I took that job as a night cleaner to sweep up, sweep up shaving off the floor. At the end of the war, over 400 men of the British Honduran Forestry Unit were repatriated. Others were allowed to stay if they could find a job. Amos Ford worked in a brewery cleaning vats, while at night he studied to become an accountant. After he qualified, he received a letter to come for an interview. And when I got to the office, a young lady, rather surprised, saw me and asked me what I wanted. So I said, uh, Mr. Ford, I come for the job. That I, with this letter, she asked me for the letter. I showed her the letter and she said, a moment, please, just stay there. So I stood there and she went away. Took her about 15 minutes to come back. And when she came back, she came back a bit nonplussed, saying, um, I'm sorry, but the, um, Mr. whoever his name was is not longer, he's not here. And so I'm very sorry and handed me back my letter. So I went away and that was the end of that job. Stan Hodges had served as a driver in the Air Force for five years. The process of finding a job really made me bitter because having tried at least half a dozen places, eventually I had to abandon the idea of getting a job as a driver. And then, of course, my gratuity was running out, so it was necessary for me to get um, employment as quick as possible. And the only alternative, the only place that would um, be prepared to offer me a job was British Railways. And that's where I had my first civilian job. Every day one hears new stories of nurses' heroism, bravery, self-sacrifice and devotion to duty. In peace or war, the call upon the trained nurse is ever-increasing. While West Indian ex-servicemen struggle to find jobs, recruiting campaigns were launched. Higher salaries and better conditions are in store both for the student and the qualified state-registered nurse. What happened is, in this shortage of labor after World War II, they were looking for an awful lot of people to work. There weren't enough people available in England to fill the jobs. So among other things, Enoch Powell, who was one time at the Ministry of Health, put out a request that more people from the Caribbean should come to this country to fill unfilled posts. He primarily was working at that time or directed his remarks to Barbados and Jamaica to get nurses to come and work in the hospitals in the Birmingham area. Utterly reliable, the nurse develops both as an individual and a willing servant of humanity. Conscious of her responsibilities, calm and confident in emergency and crisis, her future devoted to an honored service. The men also responded to Whitehall's appeal to fill other service jobs. When they arrived, many were given temporary accommodation on Clapham Common and underground in its wartime air raid shelter. Billy Strachan, now working in local government, came to help. When the shelter was opened, we went there within a matter of days, trying to tell them they should join the trade unions, trying to tell them that we must look out for the racism in the country, and the only way forward is to unite with the British workers because our interests were in common and we had to explain to them ordinary British workers are likely to be racist but you've got to overcome that. I stayed in Liverpool when I returned and I couldn't believe that there were so many unemployment in Liverpool especially among the blacks. When uh, Britain at the time were saying that right we want to go through a, a 
period of reconstruction, we need all the workers, and yet you couldn't get jobs. And I started to agitate together with my friends that the only way we can achieve anything in this country, we must fight it politically and industrially. If we try any other means, we'll fail. In fact, it's true to say, really, that you are doing nothing to break down the colour bar, but you are doing your best to smooth over any difficulties that arise once coloured men are accepted. Uh, yes, I think you can accept it, that that is the position. Once they are in the railway service, we accept them as full members of the union. But, of course, we don't go out in a crusade in a, against the colour bar or anything like that. Because the fact is that you don't want to see too many coloured men working in British railways. Yes, I think you can say that we don't, because it can create special difficulties and can exaggerate the difficulties that we have at the present time. A very large number of unions reflected the normal conservatism of, of the working class in Britain. The normal conservatism of it. The slowness to change. The lack of knowledge, the sort of things I've been talking to you about. Even the Labour Party of that day, although they would have welcomed you in it, you'd have been still treated as a general inferior animal. When the unions failed to act in the 47 to, say, 57 period, they were never, ever actively against black people. That's not my experience. But they were negligent in pushing forward the rights of black people, to see that they were promoted, to see that they were given opportunities. What pains me most is that the British public have been left in total ignorance as to why this large number of people came here from the Caribbean as immigrants. The irony of it being that people like Powell, who were directly responsible for their recruitment into this country, remained silent and never gave the British public the opportunity to know that these people did not come by their own volition, but that they were actively recruited from Whitehall and the Ministry of Transport. They still look to the countries whence they came as home. Here lies the crucial importance for you and me of that policy of assisted repatriation and resettlement which Sir Alec Douglas Hume, as leader of our party, adopted almost four years ago. Many of my colleagues were shocked because a lot of them thought that the British were so tolerant that such thoughts had never been encouraged by anyone. But it wasn't, wasn't a shock to me. The question of repatriation and all that did not um, surprise me. But what I think Powell has done is to raise the consciousness of black people, to let them realize that their position within Britain is not as safe as they thought. Too often today, people are ready to tell us, this is not possible, that is not possible. I say, whatever the true interest of our country calls for is always possible. It's really a reflection of the colonial past, because I do not think that Paul can appreciate that a black person it can be equal socially to a white man in England. People who came to this country heard of the kind of upbringing they had. 
They held passports they were British citizens. When they landed in this country in the forces, they were British citizens. When they returned, they were British citizens. And yet, in time, those people who are citizens have gradually become, come to be viewed as aliens. It was part and parcel of our lives that we were part of this great society of Britain. And in fact, I have no difficulty dealing with Britain. I don't know why people find it so difficult. Because again, if you looked at that map, and all the red areas stretched right across it, here was this world society that was British. And all that's happened is that society is now shrunk to within the borders of Britain, pulling strains and bits and pieces in with it. And now we have a miniature of that large society. Only now we're living here instead of there. My personal feeling when I got rejected was one of great disappointment, quite obviously. I'd been born in Britain, and far as I was concerned, I was an Englishman. I had all the necessary qualifications, and here was my country wanting young men to do a job and here I was fit and well and being turned down so I was I was disappointed but uh, I can tell you I stuck out my chest when I was commissioned the British Army I was I was flying in the air very very proud and I was proud that uh, I represented the colonies really as a, as a as a pioneer I have a sense of being united in remembering. I do so from a sense of pride. So in a way, it was a touch of bravado, being misguided, but certainly the sense of loyalty uh, was there. You feel a sense of belonging. One part that really gets me and <laughs> I, I'm a person that really surprised me, can cry easy, is that when the, the part that they shall not grow old, it, it seems you feel sometimes uh, like you knew some of the men personally that have really died. To me, the experience is something which help many of our people to go back to their country and help to bring about the freedom from colonialism. Although many of them have not succeeded in wiping out colonialism completely, because like I've mentioned in Jamaica before. But another thing too, that many of us have learned skills, skills which those who have returned and use it for the benefit of say, the third world. It was an international conflict. I wasn't the only one that suffered, so I don't feel that I'm any worse off. It's an extremely enlightening experience. 
I think it's all a part of the education. If one can encapsulate it for younger people and say them living through what we've had to live through, I'd be only too happy, happy for the future. But I don't feel bitter about what has happened. It's, it's been difficult, in some ways interesting. I don't regret a thing that has happened. I was very proud to have helped. And uh, I'm still proud. Yeah. So to remind myself, I go on the marches and uh, I feel good on the marches. For I remember that I did my little stint for my country. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.